Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Fitzpatrick. Occasionally, you will know on uh, Think Humanities, we uh, like to talk to a variety of, uh, of folks from across the Commonwealth. And sometimes we uh, like to talk to our board members, uh, new uh, serving board members and and uh, maybe even some who've left uh, Kentucky Humanities and have some important things to to say or or do. And uh, uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick is our one of our new board members. We're so pleased and proud uh, that he has made the decision uh, to join our board of directors. Uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick is a distinguished professor of history at Moorhead State University. He's been there a number of years. He uh, has a BA in history from Eastern Kentucky University and an MA and a PhD from Notre Dame University and has been in the teaching field for some time. And uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation, uh, folks. So uh, welcome, Ben, uh, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thank you, Bill. I'm always happy to work with the Kentucky Humanities Council, uh, especially I'm glad to be uh, on the board. So anything that I can do to promote history is uh, always uh, uh, great. So thank you for having me. Well, you're certainly welcome. And maybe that's a good place to start. So in a bit of uh, reading about your past and uh, uh, experiences uh, in, in teaching and some of the, the quotes I've pulled out, you have uh, uh, you seem to uh, live those words. You're interested in, in history and interested, uh, it appears, uh, to uh, want more of your students and I would say the general public to know more about history. So when did um, when did all that begin with you? When did you uh, decide that uh, history was something that you were interested in and, and wanted to know more about? Um, well, I think that if you could go back in time and, I guess, uh, talk to some of my teachers uh, in, in high school, uh, Somerset High School, that's, that's where I'm from, it's from Somerset, Kentucky, uh, some of them would probably say, yeah, Ben, I'm not that surprised you'd be a history professor. I, I was always interested uh, in history. It's been one of those, one of those things, uh, the, the stories, uh, you know, the individuals, uh, it's just, uh, I, I don't think at the time I could have put it into words, but now the way I see it is, it's the ability you know, to learn from the past. As I tell my students, uh, look at history as a usable past. There are events that happened in the past that can provide us some idea. There, you know, there's not going to be an exact, you know, replication of what happened in the past. But there are things that happened in the past that give us a pretty good idea of, you know, the roadmap that we can take now, what the future may look like. So the past can provide us with some pretty useful uh, information. And so I think maybe that's what I was getting uh, at, at the time, but I couldn't have put that, put that into words. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always uh, loved, loved history. Uh, now, becoming a history professor, kind of personally, 
Um, as an undergrad at, at EKU, I mean, I was a, a non-traditional student. So I had been in the military uh, for three years. I served in the United States Army uh, for three years. Uh, went back to uh, Eastern Kentucky University, majored in history and, and also uh, English. And I really didn't know what I was going to do with my degree. And I, and I, and I remember and I remember this. Uh, I was walking down the hallway one day and the chair of the department, a guy named Professor David Sefton, he stopped me in the hallway and he said, uh, Ben, have you thought about going to, to grad school? And I said, no, not really. Stop by my office and we'll talk about it. And through my talks with Professor Sefton and other professors at EKU, uh, that's how I made my decision to, to, go, to, to go to grad school. And uh, if I hadn't done that, I don't know, maybe I could have gone on and, and taught anyway, you know, maybe at the high school or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've always gravitated towards, towards history. I also read that uh, at, at some point in your life, maybe when you were uh, uh, younger, uh, maybe back in high school or certainly all the way through your uh, higher educational um, history, uh, that you, you enjoyed reading biographies of historical figures? Yes, uh, I particularly loved um, reading about the, about the presidents, um, Woodrow Wilson and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, then when I got into, you know, undergrad, uh, I really loved reading, you know, like Booker T. Washington and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois, you know, his, um, his essays are just like poetry. Uh, but yeah, I, I loved uh, reading uh, biographies of, of, uh, of our historical actors, yeah. And when you decided uh, to go to graduate school, uh, you didn't uh, just go to any graduate school in history. Uh, uh, everyone is familiar. I don't know if there's anybody on the planet that doesn't know the name Notre Dame and Notre Dame University, such a fine uh, uh, school. And uh, what what was that path for you? What attracted you there? Uh, how fortunate did you feel? Uh, uh, not that, uh, and I want to be sure that uh, I'm not uh, stepping on some Kentucky toes here, uh, we have fine history uh, departments and graduate schools uh, in the state of Kentucky at many of our universities. Uh, but uh, to go out of state and to go to Notre Dame must have been a, a real privilege for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would have never, um, I would have never imagined uh, that I would have ended up at, at Notre Dame. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, everybody knows Notre Dame for, for football. So I knew it for that. Uh, but uh I had professors uh, at EKU who encouraged me to uh, apply to Notre Dame. Uh, they encouraged me to uh, apply to uh, Boston College. Uh, they, you know, they they encouraged me to you know shoot for the top. You know, you're you're a great student. You've got great potential. Uh, you know, shoot for shoot for the top. And and I did. And uh, I went for a visit. I, I remember when I got. Got accepted. I went for a visit to Notre Dame, and I fell in love with the place. I mean, it is an absolutely gorgeous uh, campus, uh, a very welcoming uh, community. Uh, South Bend is wonderful. A little, little cold in the winter. <laughs> a little cold in the winter. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. That was a, that was a bit of a culture shock going there from, from Kentucky, where you know, a little, little milder winters. 
but overall, I just really fell in love uh, with the place. And, uh, you know, I, su I suppose those first couple of semesters at Notre Dame, I did feel like a little bit, oh my gosh, you know, I'm in way over my head here. I mean, I'm not really sure if I can do this or not. But my professors were so, so encouraging. And, uh, you know, I, I settled in and, and uh, you know, made my, made my way through it. But yeah, I felt very, very privileged to, to go to Notre Dame. Absolutely. What was it about um, your beginning there that uh, was intimidating to you? What, what, why did you um, do sort of that self-analysis of uh, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared for this? Well, I think that lots of students, lots of students who go to grad school feel that way. I, I had a professor tell me that if you don't feel like you're lost at sea after your first semester or so, something's probably wrong. You should feel like you're lost. So uh, I guess I was, I guess I was normal, but it was just, I felt kind of, uh, you know, that I was lacking uh, a knowledge. I was lacking knowledge about the historiography of certain certain areas and of course of course I was I mean I didn't I didn't know it but the way that grad school is taught uh you know it's not based on lecture uh on lecture format I mean you are reading you know maybe a, a book and several articles a week and you're trying to digest all of that and then you have to go in and talk about it and that's basically what your grade is based on. You're writing papers, but you're also discussing it. And you've got to put your ideas uh, out there in front of the professor, in front of other grad students. And so that can be kind of uh, kind of mm -hmm. intimidating because I really didn't do that uh, at, at, at EKU. And we did a lot of, uh, you know, had a lot of good work. I got a great foundational education there, but it was, you know, it's nothing like, like grad school where you've got to you know, try to digest this immense amount of material, what seems to be a short amount of time. You know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're working with all these great minds and writers, you know, people who are at the top of their field. It's like, oh, <laughs> do, do, you, do you think, you know, I was going to just say that, that, do you think your three years in the military right out of high school uh, added uh, some uh, maturity, uh, some direction uh, to your life that, that not only uh, might have helped you at Eastern, uh, but then uh, you were older when you went to grad school too, a lot of people go back to school and, and I'm sure you were maybe with uh, more people your age or, or even older going to grad school. Uh, what was that? Uh, there, there is a debate in, in this country in uh, education about uh, kids taking a, a gap year or uh, going through uh, some public service uh, before they go to college that, that, or grad school, that sort of thing. Um, was that a help to you? I'll, I'll tell you this, Bill. I am very glad that I did join uh, the military. Uh, I got to meet people that otherwise I would have never met. People from now, just not just all across the country, but all across the world, um, different walks of life, people with different perspectives and experiences from mine. I got to go to places that otherwise I wouldn't have uh, gotten to go. Uh, go. Uh, some of them were, you know, hot like the jungles of, pa of Panama. Uh, but uh, you know, I never, otherwise, I never would have got to uh, experience that. And I, you know, being in the military, and I was in the infantry. I was uh, an eleven Bravo uh, infantryman, 
So, I mean, it was, it was tough. And so you had to have uh, stamina, you had to have confidence and you had to be able to, you know, um, gut check time, you know, to, to make your way through it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, that was a great experience and that did help me get through, you know, undergrad and graduate school, you know, having that, uh, having that, uh, I guess, experience. Yeah. Uh, ben, is it difficult to teach history today? Are students uh, coming uh, into your uh, classroom at Moorhead, are they prepared or as prepared as you were or better prepared? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, this may not be a fulfilling answer, but it depends. I get a wide variety of students. Some are very prepared to be there. Um, you could throw almost any assignment at them and they will, you know, uh, meet the expectations or exceed it. Then you have others, you know, there are certain assignments, particularly uh, I've noticed with writing assignments, they're not necessarily the best uh, writers. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of uh, experience researching. In other words, they just kind of go on to Google and the first thing that pops up, you know, they'll use that instead of using uh, peer-reviewed sources. And then I have other students who just have very little or no experience uh, in, in history. And uh, actually, uh, that's one of the questions that I tend to start my classes off with, which is, you know, tell me about your experiences with, with history classes. And some of them, I mean, they haven't had history for Long, a long time, or they'll tell me, you know, uh, the you know the history class at my school was taught by the football coach, and you know he didn't really show much interest in it, or something, you know, something along those lines. So the the, the I guess the short answer is is that it varies. Some students have really good experiences with history. Um, some students, you know, not not so much. Uh, as you may or may not know. Um, Part of our reason that we produce Think History, which uh, airs on public radio uh, in Kentucky, uh, grow, uh, grew out of uh, a conversation that occurred between a couple of historians that, that you know well um, uh, after a board meeting. And uh, I just happened to eavesdrop on their conversation about history uh, professors not being uh, reinstated at uh, or uh, their positions filled after they retired at, at uh, some universities, uh, that uh, Kentucky history was not being taught uh, the way it was 25 years ago. And they felt a real lack of uh, a real longing for Kentucky history and, and, and uh, especially about your own state to be taught in, in, in uh, and I'm sure that in that conversation, which occurred about five years ago, it's only uh, exacerbated uh, a bit. Uh, and so we developed this program. And I just I recently did a, a little talk for the Berry Center uh, and it's on YouTube. But it was primarily the the subject matter was was the lack of uh, of knowledge about our own state and about Kentucky history. And. Um, I hope that at Kentucky Humanities, we can continue to, to beat that drum and, and be effective in, in trying to instill in the educational system a, a real 
desire. I, I can't, but I can't imagine somebody growing up in, in this state and, and not knowing um, Kentucky history uh, the way you do. And, and hopefully the way uh, our followers at Kentucky humanities do uh, thus the, the birth of, of think history. So the, the, the question is um, particularly about um, um, history and, and some of those students maybe that didn't have a, an interest in it in high school or came to your class and had not really uh, had an instructor that they wanted to, to really learn from. How do you get students interested in, in history? And what would you say, and I, I know you've worked on some of the academic uh, rules and regulations, H how can we uh, reverse the pattern of not teaching history, especially Kentucky history, and Put that back into our school system. Yeah, that's a that's another interesting and also a, a hard question because once again, it 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 depends. Uh, I've got some students who you know they may not have had a whole lot of history, but also history isn't necessarily their strong suit. And then I've got other students who you know they're asking all kinds of questions uh, about history, even though it may not be their their uh, their their major their major uh, uh, interest. I, su I suppose that one of the ways that you can uh, do that, one of the ways that I try to do it, is I try to, as I said, try to make history a usable uh, a, a past. So, for example, uh, I teach the history of Kentucky at, at Morehead State. Uh, we teach it uh, as a part of uh, well, we have to offer it so every so often for education majors. So they'll have the opportunity to take it. And you can't imagine the number of students who don't know, uh, you know, the history of my old Kentucky home. They don't know really kind of the history of, you know, their state's song. You know, they don't know that it's about a slave who's been sold away from Kentucky down to the deep south. And he's you know longing for his old Kentucky home. You know, they don't know about Stephen Foster. And all. So I try to, to the best of my ability, try to connect those things back to uh, current uh, events. So for example, uh, I have a lecture where I talk about um, Confederate monuments uh, in Kentucky and how they're part of that lost cause mythology. And, you know, I talk about the lost cause myth, how it uh, um, manifested itself in, in Kentucky. And so, I, and then, you know, when you get to the end of the lecture, then I try to ask them, you know, what should we do about this controversy over, over monuments? Do you think that they should remain in public spaces? Should they be put in museums? You know, should movies like uh, Birth of a Nation, should they be uh, available? You know, what do you so, so I try my best to connect uh, history back to some sort of uh, current issue or uh, mainstream controversy, something that they can uh, dig, dig their teeth in. And uh, sometimes that makes sometimes that makes the connection. Um, also, one of the things that we uh, offer at Morehead State is uh, a, a, a concentration in public history. And public history is, is big. Um, although COVID kind of put it put a dent in that, obviously. But taking students uh, on, on field trips. Uh, a few years ago, uh, uh, Professor and I, uh, Professor Adrian Manzi, uh, he's a European historian, Moorhead, 
uh, we took a group of students to the Petersburg uh, battlefield and did some excavations, um, you know, dug up all sorts of, of great things, mini balls and Confederate uh, jacket buttons and all sorts of great things. And so, you know, that's that's hands-on history, you know, uh, and we were working with the National Park Service with that and the students put together uh, a project documenting all of these uh, artifacts and it's now available through uh, Morehead's library. So, you know, you can create, create these projects where students can actually kind of go out and put their hands on these artifacts and, you know, present their own research. And so that too is another way uh, to try to get students interested in history in, in ways that perhaps they might not be interested before. Uh, ben, just last week, I was uh, in Russellville um, at what is now called the Sikh Museum, but um, uh, that's another example of um, of an area that, uh, frankly, I did not know uh, much about and uh, what they're trying to do. And, and our board member, uh, Dr. Selena Doss, who uh, professor at Western Kentucky University in African-American history, is a big part of that project uh, in Russellville. But um, it's amazing uh, the in a area that is is probably not over a couple of blocks um, in geographic uh, circumference, uh, the the history that has been discovered, the records that go back, uh, uh, the lynchings that occurred there, uh, the well-known people that that we should know about, like journalist Alice Dunnigan and um, a, a singer who um, was from that area who went on to fame in um, in Chicago, New York, and other places that came from there, and and that that's uh, another example, and I think that's the again the emphasis of of studying Kentucky history and uh, having students uh, be exposed to uh, living, breathing exhibits and and that sort of thing. You you said uh, uh, in a paper that I, I read. Um, not necessarily about uh, public history, but about today's history. You said uh, uh, too many misinformed people have become their own experts armed with alternate facts that fit their existing times. Put simply as a nation, we have to grow up. We have to collectively acknowledge both the rights and the wrongs of America uh, of what America has done. We have to overcome this pathological desire to create a myth, the past rooted in American exceptionalism. So give me your interpretation of your own words there of what you were trying to say in, in a, a couple of sentences. Well, I, I, I think that what I was trying to say there is, is that if you just kind of look at American history, just kind of in, in general, right? Americans love to create myths about the nation's history, about themselves, and that, you know, that, that language, the vernacular that comes with that, that myth oftentimes gets ahead of how society actually uh, works, right? We're supposed to be the land of, of liberty, freedom and yet you know we've got you know hundreds of years of sl of slavery you know 100 almost 100 years of crowism hundreds of years of, of uh, women being disenfranchised native americans being displaced and disenfranchised and somehow all of the 
stuff that's contrary to the myth gets pushed pushed aside. And I think that what's going on here right now in America is it's one of those rare moments where the country has to face the consequences of white supremacy. When you look at American history, there are those moments. The Civil War, for example, is one of those moments where, you know, the country has to face the consequences of white supremacy. After World War II, during the Cold War, the rise of the civil rights movement, that's another, um, another moment. And I think we're in that moment now. And I think that for many people, when they're confronted with the effects of white supremacy, it makes them uncomfortable. And I think that's what I was trying to say with that is, is that there is this kind of pathological need to try to control how race is talked about, how gender is, is talked about. And, uh, you know, we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't do that in a democracy. We've got to allow uh, more voices to, uh, to be heard and more interpretations, right? And kind of out of that mix, out of that melu, this is where we're going to get kind of really you know, who we are um, as, as a people. And it, it, you know, it's not going to be perhaps nice. It may be uncomfortable, but it's, it's the truth. And from that truth, you know, we can, we can better ourselves and try to better this experiment in democracy. I'm uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Ben Fitzpatrick on, uh, our Think Humanities podcast uh, this week. Uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick is a uh, professor, uh, a PhD at Moorhead State University teaching, uh, history, and uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, final talking points with uh, Ben uh, right after we hear from our uh, great friends, our underwriter, Spalding University. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Ben, um, those are excellent points and uh, they're well thought out uh, and uh, certainly uh, well said. Um, is there, a, I've also read that, uh, and you might have mentioned it earlier in your, your definition, your longing to teach uh, history, uh, how we connect the past with the present. Um, and there are probably examples that you can give us. Uh, there, uh, there might be a, a way that you articulate that uh, of, of taking a, an, an event that occurred a long time ago, uh, why it's important to know about it, but also taking it up to present day and maybe seeing it either replicated or, or uh, an example of, of, of what it might look like in, in, in present day America or the world for that matter. Um, so how do we connect the past and the present? Oh, another, good, another good question. I suppose that the, the, the best way to, to think about that is that you're looking for these these patterns, and as I, as I said, um, not every event in the past is going to be exactly like uh, you know a, a present a present event, but there are certainly uh, patterns. And I was actually thinking about this 
um, the other day and thinking about, you know, the Supreme Court and how it's definitely has this conservative uh, bent uh, now. And it reminds me of when, uh, you know, John Adams uh, and the Federalists lost the 1800 presidential uh, election. And basically what uh, Adams did before he left office was he appointed a number of Federalist judges to the bench, including uh, John Marshall, right, to, as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he did it because he knew that the writing was on the wall for the Federalist Party, that the Democratic Republicans, the Jeffersonians, that they were essentially going to take control and be in, be in power. And having the courts, right, as kind of this Federalist uh, bastion, would be able to block Jefferson and Madison and Jeffersonians. And uh, in some ways, I, I kind of see the same pattern happening uh, here. Uh, I, I wonder how long um, you know, Republicans and conservatives, uh, you know, how long are they going to have this type of, of power? And they see the courts perhaps as their way of entrenching uh, power and blocking uh, democratic uh, uh, future democratic initiatives. So there are kind of all sorts of patterns that you can uh, you can you can see. But once again, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen? I, I'm not I'm not saying that you know this is the end of the Republican Party. Yeah, well, no, you're right. And, and uh, of um, of all of the trials and tribulations that uh, Senator Mitch McConnell has uh, been through and uh, uh, some people would would not name uh, what he considers his legacy. Uh, and it's not uh, being the longest serving senator and uh, being reelected after being, you know, all of those things. It's it's appointing conservative judges to the court. That that's what he labels as his legacy. It's not yeah. winning two or three presidencies or being uh, you know, the most important Republican in Washington and all that. It's it, yeah, it's just that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this final question, just just out of interest, because I also saw that uh, you you were a uh, a big fan, still a big fan of Jack Johnson, and uh, I'd, I'd like to know why. Are, are you a um, are you a boxer? Uh, and and for those who don't know uh, Jack Johnson, tell us uh, tell us about him. Well, I, so Jack Johnson was the first uh, African American uh, heavyweight, uh, early twentieth century. Uh, the reason why I uh, was kind of focused there on Jack Johnson, I did a, a lecture for KEDC. I do professional development for middle school uh, teachers, hmm. and I gave this lecture on. Uh, Jack Johnson. And the, the reason why I focused on Jack Johnson, because Jack Johnson was kind of like the anti-hero, I guess you might say, of, of civil rights. Um, Jack Johnson was what they called uh, a sporting man. Now, a sporting man didn't mean that he was, I mean, he, was a, he was an athlete, he was a boxer. But he was a sporting man in the sense that he hung out with uh, gamblers, prostitutes. He had several <laughs> girlfriends who were, were prostitutes. And for middle-class Black people, Jack Johnson was just absolutely horrendous. Uh, you know, no, no respectable uh, Black family in the middle class would ever allow their daughters to associate with Jack Johnson. They didn't want to associate with Jack Johnson. But Jack Johnson didn't, didn't care. And he didn't care what Black people thought about him. He didn't care white people thought about it. 
he just kind of lived his lived his own life. And so I tried to kind of use him as a foil in, in my lectures, you know, kind of comparing him to you know, Booker T. Washington or W. B. Du Bois, uh, Ida B. Wells, you know, they are certainly uh, more uh, respectable. And even among those three, I mean, they had their disagreements about how to move forward civil rights. But Jack Johnson is kind of, kind of out here, kind of on, on the fringes, uh, as I would say, he's given the middle finger uh, to everybody, but he's a uh, but he's an interesting uh, he's an interesting figure. Uh, of course, uh, being taken down by the by the Mann Act around nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen or so. Um, so, but yeah, he, he's he's an interesting figure to kind of use as a foil when you're uh, talking about Booker T. Washington, Du Bois, and uh, Ida B. Wells, and all these uh, uh, civil rights figures of the of the early twentieth century. Uh, ben, let me ask you uh, if you can leave us with uh, an assignment um, uh, uh, for those that uh, you, you've mentioned W.D. B- uh, du Bois a couple of times, uh, Booker T. Washington. Um, and I don't know if you have it right there in front of you, but uh, we can certainly get that to people if they're interested. Uh, of the writings, uh, the essays of Du Bois, what what would you consider uh, something that you would recommend that 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 all people uh, take a look at and read and uh uh, um, and learn from, uh, uh, or, or, uh, another noted, uh, figure that you've studied and that you respect. Um, well, let's see, I would say, uh, almost anything by Du Bois is, is great. Uh, uh, Souls of Black Folks, his, uh, series of, of essays where he looks at you know, black culture, music, poetry, uh, that's certainly uh, a good, a good book. I, I, I think that if <sighs> Malcolm X's autobiography, if you if you've never read Malcolm X's autobiography, you you should. Uh, you know, Malcolm X really doesn't necessarily need any sort of explanation, I suppose. But he's such an interesting figure. I love to use his autobiography in my classes because he has all these sort of blind spots as well, right? I mean, he's out there fighting for black civil rights, but there's also some misogyny, you know, in his, in his views. Uh, some of his views towards whites would certainly be considered uh, a racist. But he's this guy who goes through this tremendous change in his life yeah. from you mm-hmm. know, what he says is, you know, the lower, you know, the lowest thug. Uh, you know, on the streets of New York to this very eloquent uh, 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 leader. And to watch him make this transformation uh, is just, it's just immense. It's probably been one of the most influential uh, books uh, for me uh, that, that I've read. So yeah, it was always anything by the boys, uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. Um, yeah. Good. Uh, two good uh, assignments for all of us uh, listening to Think Humanities. And Ben, uh, again, uh, we're so uh, glad, we're so proud uh, that you are now, um, although you've been affiliated with Kentucky Humanities in the past in a, a several different ways, uh, we're so glad that you're going to be on the board of directors and and uh, we'll call on you uh, many times, I'm sure, over your uh, time with us uh, for your expertise and advice in all matters, but uh, certainly in uh, matters of uh, historical significance. So we're really looking forward to having you um, with us a little bit uh, closer and getting to know you. And hopefully through this podcast, we've gotten to, uh, more people have gotten to know you uh, a bit better. So thanks very much for joining us. Oh, excellent. Thank you for having me. Love, love to talk to you. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.